needed a jacket, a lightweight jacket that had pockets and was a nice kind of breathable material. What for? Walking the dog. Oh, okay. Uh, and the, but what, not like a full-on waterproof. So I've been wearing this like orange trudel, and my brother-in-law said that he can see me from a mile off in my orange trudel, and I thought, okay, I don't want that to be my thing. <laughs> but the the, the 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 precise material that I needed was a football anthem jacket. This is an anthem jacket, and I looked on a discount website and saw which one I could get at a knockdown <laughs> price, and it was this Valencia one from last season. How much? Uh, Forty quid. They're like, pounds? they're like 90 quid. Yeah, they're really expensive. Whoa, they're they really expensive. I, I, I don't quite know who would buy one at full price, I've got to admit. I don't know, a fan? Valencia fan? But why would you buy an anthem jacket? The father of a Valencia and... fan who wants the, the anthem jacket for Christmas? I just think it's a very... Un, un, I mean, I suppose unless you're a devoted Valencia fan. I mean, I, I should point out that other, other clubs are available. I also... I was on the train after the Italy-Austria game on the tube on the way back to central London. And there were some fans wearing the Italy anthem jacket, which is like a dark green, which is untraditional and is wrong, but it's actually a really nice jacket. And I thought that that is a nice jacket. I liked the look, but then I looked to see how much the Italy one was, and it was like 120 quid. And I thought, well, I don't like the look that much. I'll buy a cheaper one. So I got a Valencia one. It was this or Sampdoria was my other choice. I think kids um, are going to start putting on their Christmas list rather than yeah. home shirt or away shirt. Anthem. anthem jacket. Away anthem Dear jacket. Santa. So, Rory, has your car man come? <clears throat> mm. No. I mean, he said, he texted me to say, we've had, I've had quite a stressful week with cars. Um, he kind of caught up with me. And I've known for literally four years that this is the week that the car, the car leaves. And it's been a good servant. I'm quite emotional about the Hyundai Tucson. Um, and I had what, to go what, and... What kind, of, what kind of footballer would it be? Uh, what, that's a very years. good question. What so mm. heavy set but yeah. long lasting? Um, Wayne Rooney, Neil Redfern, Neil Redfern of cars. Excellent. It's a it's a Neil Redfern of a car. Like but it. I went I went to get the new car on Tuesday in Sheffield with my dad, which is an upgrade. I mean, no disrespect to Neil Redfern. No, this is this is very much a. I mean, it's steady, reliable, but it's just a little bit swish. I don't know who who that would. Who that James, would be? It's not James Milner, is it? He's not is it Pierre Jimmy Emil Bullard? Do you know what? It is Pierre Emile Hoybjerg. That is the perfect. It's it's still a hard worker, <laughs> but there's just a touch of glamour. It might even be Oriol Romeo, if I'm honest. The is, is Romeo an upgrade from Hoybjerg? Do you think? No, but he's a little bit from more. Redford. <laughs> he's a little bit more kind of classy, isn't he, Romeo? Hoybjerg's a strapper. I, to be honest, I, I, I don't know. There's, they're both very good at scrapping and also sideways passing. Do you not find this that because it's July the whatever, you have completely forgotten all prim- the names of all Premier League footballers? I have. I could only name two, and that's Pierre Emil Hoybier. I don't think I could name Neil all twenty Redford. clubs. <laughs> the, I couldn't name all twenty clubs. I'd really struggle. I have forgotten what colour Manchester United play in. Are um, Burnley and Crystal Palace likely to meet each other at 3pm on a Saturday? In the Burnley day? Palace is the game that we're all looking forward to. Man, United released their new kit recently, as you would they have did. seen. It looks like someone's pyjamas, as Adam Crafton said, the athletic journalist. Um, and I had this moment where I thought, I don't know what colour United's shorts are meant to be. What colour shorts are Man United meant to wear? They're meant to wear black, but they went through a period of wearing white shorts in the Champions League under lights because Sir Alex Ferguson thought that identification was easier with white shorts under the lights at Old Trafford in particular. Back in the days of uh, George Best, they wore white shorts, didn't they? George Best and Bobby Charlton, they wore white shorts, didn't they? They did then, they did then. But more recently, yeah. I think it's been officially that it's been black shorts at all times, apart from 
oh. you know, during that time. That was, you know, that's we're talking 15 years ago when that rule was been. So I think we, red and white would have been United, blue and white city, wasn't it? You know, well, it's always traditionally yeah. red, white, and black. Yeah, red, white and black. Okay. Yeah, that's why a lot of their flags that the fans have look like they're celebrating the nation of Egypt. Yeah. Um, the yeah, so I, I've, I've forgotten <laughs> everything about football, um, which is quite depressing. So I can't really compare what sort of football my, my new car is. But it's not—it's not like a—it's not a fancy car. It's just a—it's just a family saloon. It's not just an Angolo Conte, for example. It's—it's uh, it's more like Conte than the than the current than the you know God rest its soul. Although you I mean, get a lot dying. of miles it's to just, the gallon. It's just being resold. No, it gets fewer miles to the gallon than fewer. my current car, but it's well, not diesel. Yeah, it can't so, be, oh, I see. So it's better for the environment. There's a Jorginho, lot of Jorginho because he doesn't run around as much, but he is yeah. still an upgrade. It might be yeah. Jorginho. I love Jorginho de- deeply. What about um, Verratti? Ver- no Verratti. No, it's no Verratti. Good as Verratti. No Verratti. No Verratti. That's too swish and little. Yeah. Also, it's big. Well, it's quite big, and Jorginho's not that big. No, that's so. true. It might it's be Scudder If it's Verratti, he's hitting the central reservation on the motorway on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> And, well, and also, he, he, it would be un- unavailable for use at least six months of the year. This is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Georgie Porgy Pudding and Pie, Stephen Wyeth, Goosey Goosey Gander, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Wee Willy Winky. Um, oh, how do you know? Oh, I see. <laughs> the food is a virtual feast. Now, we're doing a three-parter, otherwise known as a filler, during the summer when we'd rather not spend time together. Um, and so what we would normally do uh, when we were doing a large recording session, we'd go to Chinch's house and we would be provided a three-course meal to marry up with the amount of podcasts that we were doing mm-hmm. by Chinch's wonderful wife, Nikki. Now, yep. clearly we're not together. We're not allowed to be. Um, we're also not particularly willing to make the effort to be um but also uh, we still wanted to reflect that part of it so chinch would you like to tell us um over the course of the next three weeks what nikki would have prepared for us so, okay. so today is the starter uh, of this okay. virtual nikki hinchcliffe feast can i can i um name check my go-to fishmonger or not is it okay to there are other fishmongers available in wimslow but i go to big fish little fish which is a great name and two of the greatest fishmongers you're ever going to come across. They've, what, got scales under their, they've got scales under their nails, but you don't worry about that because they provide the best fish in Wimslow, people. What we're going to have for starter, supplied by, locally sourced, supplied by Big Fish Little Fish in Wimslow, are pan-fried scallops with pancetta bacon and chorizo on a bed of fresh watercress with a creme fraiche and a zest of lemon dressing. I'm trying to do my best Marks and Spencer voice here, but it's not really working. But this is, this is a tremendous starter. Uh, Chinch, thank you very much indeed. The football is, and it's back to you, Chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Premier League! (laughs) It is time for an SPM series. Like many of the major annual summer events, this was cancelled in 2020, but we're back. We have three connected episodes coming at you over the next three weeks, considering the many different aspects to this Subject, Premier League exceptionalism. Now, those of you who listen to the same American politics podcast as I do, or indeed those of you who are actually American, will know of the phrase American exceptionalism and how it means different things to different people. Well, we're going to be applying the same nuanced debate, one would hope, 
to the Premier League. It might be the best, but could that also be the very root of what undermines its exceptionalism? And also, is it literally an exception? Does what happens in the English League bear no resemblance to achievements or reputations elsewhere? So that is to come. Now, as this is a three-part series delivered over either three weeks for you, or indeed one morning between feed, school runs, and a Zoom obsession with Joao, we will return to your <laughs> correspondence once we are done with it. But do, in the meantime, please keep sending your emails to menu at gmail.com. So, without a correspondence part of a show, known in these parts as further ado, let's jump straight in. We're going to split our subject into a number of sub-subjects that will not surprise you that number is three. And I'll now hand you over to Stephen Wyeth, who is very much the generator of this first part. I've been trying to sell this idea to you for weeks, and eventually Hugh has got desperate enough to accept this suggestion. But I got to thinking about the Premier League's place in in sort of the football ecosystem when Carlo Ancelotti returns to Real Madrid from Everton. And that, of course, means that the next El Clasico will be contested between managers whose previous club jobs were less than spectacular stints with Everton. So Ronald Koeman uh, left Goodison with them in the bottom three in October 2017. And Ancelotti, well, he finished 10th despite top six, even top four expectations at a certain point in the season. So does what you do in the Premier League only really matter in the Premier League? Is the Premier League's exceptionalism, its popularity and its cash generation, and and whilst we see it as the apex predator, does it really sit in its own ecosystem with success and failure not really determined by those viewing on from outside of it? So the die is cast. Stephen, answer your own question. In the case of that example of the now managers or head coaches of Real Madrid and Barcelona, it does seem as though what they ultimately weren't able to do at Everton has not tainted them in regards to getting a big job in Spain. I don't think in the Premier League, a manager who finished 10th in another top European division would be considered a viable candidate for a a top two job, not even a top four job. And in the case of Ronald Koeman, who was long so it seemed destined to become the Barcelona manager at some point what happened when he stepped up from Southampton to Everton in the Premier League yes he finished seventh at the end of his his first season but then sluggish start to to the subsequent season and was sacked when they dropped into the relegation zone after losing 5-2 to Arsenal in, in October 2017 that didn't seem to do anything to diminish his chances of getting the Barcelona job certainly not from Barcelona's point of view whereas within the Premier League looking at through it through a a, a Premier League focus lens many would have thought that was it for his opportunity for a top job so it appears that whilst we put the Premier League up on a pedestal and perhaps for many reasons it, it does fulfill that mantra of being the best domestic league in the world it it does increasingly appear that those other elite European divisions certainly Germany Italy Spain France don't 
fully determine their decision making on what a player or a manager does or doesn't do during their time in England. Is it is it tricky though if we're looking at Ancelotti and Koeman who are big names in their own rights? Is it is it to say well how they actually do in the Premier League affects they where they would go? Would they go somewhere anyway because of? Their, their CVs and their names, Steve. So actually how they did in the Premier League clearly didn't affect them moving on. Is that, well, are they kind of examples to look at? If it was any other lesser-named coach and this happened, you could maybe then attach to it that how they've done in the Premier League is immaterial. But maybe with, with the size of the, and the kind of stature of these coaches, it, it really, really didn't matter how they did in the league. I suppose that's why I sort of focused on Koeman in that initial example, because Ancelotti will have had considerably more coaching credit in the bank yeah. in terms of his return to Real Madrid. And you can certainly see why that was an, an, an attractive proposition. And he was someone who would have, have leapt at the opportunity to return there, as he, as he, as he clearly did. Yeah, na- name counts for a lot. But you know, we could look at Roberto Martinez as, a, as another example, as, as another former Everton coach. Yes, he won the FA Cup with Wigan, but it didn't work out for him at Everton, yet he was given the job to lead the most talented and exciting group of, of young national team players anywhere in Europe when he took on, on the Belgium job. Hasn't quite come to fruition as yet. But again, what happened with him at Everton clearly didn't do him any lasting damage in terms of getting an incredibly prestigious position the one that he currently has now. Yeah, I, I think there's there's kind of two things at play. One is that, as Chint says, Ancelotti. It's not just the name of the manager; it's the it's the destination they go to. So Ancelotti, obviously former Real Madrid manager, um, multiple European Cup winner, huge name. Real were in the situation where they felt they needed someone with a bit, a bit of stardust. And what mattered to them more? What mattered more than the fact that and than the fact that Ancelotti had performed relatively poorly at Everton, not relatively, you know, he'd done okay at Everton, nothing spectacular, um, was the fact that he's Carlo Ancelotti. And Koeman, I think, as a former Barca player, was someone that Barcelona, a Barcelona that we have seen over the last couple of years, is not especially well run, could could kind of sell to the fans as part of the club's tra- tradition. And those were the factors that outweighed how well they'd performed in their previous jobs. But I, I, I do think it's, it's interesting on two levels. One is that the, in like the, the first decade of this century, the 2000s, there was a sense that you could be Chelsea manager, mess it up spectacularly, and everyone just go like, you know, whatever, you get, you, you get sacked at Chelsea, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect your reputation. And there's an element of that about PSG, that you can be sacked by PSG and no one, no one will, will think, well, you must be a bad manager then, because PSG just sacked everybody. You know, everyone gets sacked at PSG. Ancelotti got sacked at PSG, and Emery got sacked at PSG, and Tuchel got sacked at PSG. It doesn't matter how you do at PSG, because you're going to get sacked eventually. So clubs don't necessarily read that as being a damning indictment or proof of your limitations. And I do wonder whether, with teams in the Premier League, there's an element of, we accept that you cannot succeed except in certain situations. You know, if you look, if you were to look at the Premier League now and say, right, which managers in the Premier League have, in that traditional kind of earning the, your, your Spurs sense, which managers have, should be in line for, in inverted commas, a big job? And it's Guardiola and Klopp and, and Tuchel, and that's about it. Because ultimately, if you're manager of Everton or even Leicester, 
you're not going to win the lead. Not 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 really. You might you once in 120 years you might get Claudio Ranieri's Leicester doing it, but but generally you're not going to win the lead. You're probably not going to qualify for the Champions League because there are six clubs that are expected to qualify for the Champions League ahead of you. Um, everything has to fall in your favour for that to happen. And I think clubs generally understand that it doesn't. It's funny if it doesn't really apply to Ancelotti or Koeman, both of whom were, were appointed for different reasons. But I think clubs generally understand that you you can only succeed in a certain way in certain contexts. That that all success is relative, um, and that I suspect means that. Bet- there's an element of glamour to the Premier League that, that foreign clubs see. There's an element of of belief that it is the highest, that it, there is belief that it is the most difficult league in the world and there is belief that it is the highest domestic standard of football. So simply being there is qualification enough. The fact that you got a Premier League job is a big tick on your CV. The fact that you might not have won anything or that it might not have ended well or that you could only take Everton to seventh is not proof of failure. So the, the flip side of that, then, interestingly, in terms of this Premier League exceptionalism, is the idea that, however highly regarded the likes of Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp were, that the ultimate test of their talent and capabilities was whether they could replicate that in the Premier League. So, again, this idea that, that it perhaps sits a little outside, it's not a progression or even a sideways step from one of the other big leagues, that it almost sits out on its own. Because from within the Premier League focus, it's like, yeah, yeah, they've done, they've done really well, but can they do it in the toughest division of the lot? So almost if you come into the Premier League and you, you either meet or exceed expectations, you are placed up on a pedestal, if you come into the Premier League and and as Ancelotti did with Everton, only finished 10th when the ex- expectation was at least that he would finish 7th, that doesn't seem to damage your reputation too much. Because I'm wondering if, if Ancelotti had finished 10th in Italy with Napoli, would his return to Real Madrid have been greeted quite so favourably? Or would there have been some suspicion that this was a guy, despite his wonderful record, who, who may, whose best years may have been behind him. I think that's a valid point. But, but I, to be honest, I suspect what, what, what got Ancelotti the Real, the Real Madrid job again would still have got Ancelotti the Real Madrid job, which is having, pre, having previously managed Real Madrid, having won a Champions League with Real Madrid. That's, that's what got Ancelotti the job. And I think that, that he is at such, he's a poor example because he's, he's at such a level mm. in terms of his overall stature that yeah, if he doesn't do brilliant, he didn't do brilliantly at Napoli. He did, you know, he did okay at Napoli for a season, and that's basically it. In fact, you can make a case that none of Ancelotti's last three jobs have gone particularly brilliantly. But partly because he's very clubbable and he's a lovely fella, and and he's likable, and he's yes, he knows what he's doing. I think that's what that's all really important for, especially for someone like Florentino Perez. But mainly, Ancelotti got the job because of what he has achieved in management. I think that he he could. Um, withstand a poor season in Serie A and still get a big job by virtue of being Carlo Ancelotti. Where I think you're completely right is that I suspect you could a manager could do a, a basically quite decent job in the Premier League and still then be in contention for a much bigger job in Germany or Italy or Spain. And that is because I suspect the Premier League has that glamour, but also because it sits, as you say, 
kind of above and slightly apart from the rest of the football pyramid, if you think about the pyramid across Europe, that it's possible to say that Borussia Dortmund are a similar-sized club to, in terms of, on a, on a European scale, I don't know, Atletico Madrid? Probably they're kind of in that sort of second rank of powers. But there are plenty of English teams who are much lower down that scale in terms of size and history and likelihood of success who would see Borussia Dortmund as a place that they can go shopping or who, who would believe... Spurs, for example. I'm Spurs would... Spurs. In a couple of years, Spurs might, might, might well believe they can go and get Marco Rosa as manager, that, that, that Marco Rosa would see Spurs as a step up from Borussia Dortmund. It's not. Just Spurs is a smaller club than Borussia Dortmund. It's, it, and it's a, a vastly less successful club than Borussia Dortmund. But it's in the Premier League. And that, I think, illustrates the fact that it does sit slightly slightly to the side. Yeah, diagonal. it's diagonal to <laughs> the, the rest of Europe. The other thing that I think is really important is that, I think we've said before, or certainly I've said before, does I only have a certain number of thoughts, that the, the whole thing about, oh, English clubs should appoint more English managers and why, you know, why aren't Manchester United giving the Brighton manager a chance? Why do they insist on going? That's a poor example because they appointed a guy who managed Cardiff and Mulder. But, you know, why don't Chelsea go and get the, the manager of Watford who's done a good job and give him the job instead of going and getting the manager of PSG? And it's because that, that as I've said before, is because it's, it's, if you're Liverpool or Chelsea or Arsenal or Spurs, it's much more relevant to go and get a manager who has managed a massive club, wherever that club is, than it is to get a manager who's done well in the Premier League at a smaller club. Which is why Steve was saying it's about proving yourself, because it's often that you haven't already proved yourself in the Premier League to yeah. get a top six Premier League job. Yeah, you, 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 the top six wants, want someone. They exist in a global marketplace, and they, they effectively want a CEO who can who has run a company of that size in, in the same way as there's a reason that like Marks and Spencers don't look at a guy running the corner shop and think, you know what, he's, he's done a really good job with that corner shop. He should be in charge. There's a reason that doesn't happen. And it's the, it's exactly the same with football. That it, It's much better practice for managing Liverpool to have managed Borussia Dortmund than it is to have managed Southampton. It just, it's just the nature of it. It doesn't mean it can't work. But I think that's the other thing that's true of, of Ancelotti and Koeman is that how they did at a club of Everton size is not relevant to how they will do at Real Madrid and Barcelona because it's the, the, the jobs are completely different. That old argument of take, you know, could Pep Guardiola get Cheltenham to the Champions League? It doesn't matter because that's not his job. And no, because what Pep Guardiola does requires the best, some of the best footballers in the world, same as Jurgen Klopp. You couldn't you, you can't transliterate this, that success because the methods aren't the same. You don't need the same skill set to run a corner shop as you, to, as, you do, as you do to run Tesco. That's obvious. And I think with Ancelotti and Koeman, it's the fact that they've proven themselves at big clubs before with Koeman proving himself in inverted commas. So when, so when did the Premier League become this exceptionalism you talk about? When, when did Because it, it, can't, it can't have been from day one, clearly. If we're talking about Guardiola and Klopp coming to the Premier League to maybe prove they can do it in the Premier League. So that basically you're saying you've got the European leagues and you've got the Premier League as a separate entity that even the top coaches have to, in a way, challenge themselves, but also maybe they feel that they've got to have that on their CV as well. When did, what year did that first come? When coaches or even players as well thinking, I'm going to go and play in the Premier League. It's a totally different style of football and the demands of the Premier League are different from European football. When did it start to be seen 
as as different and separate from the rest of the European leagues. And and to help you and to give you time, Stephen and Rory, people with better brains and better mm. memories than me, uh, to give you time to come up with that exact year. The, the thing about using this phrase exceptionalism, and I alluded to it at the beginning, is that there's an idea in, in America, and Rory, you write for an American publication, I imagine that it's discussed on the same pages upon which you write, that to be exceptional is one thing, but to consider yourself exceptional is something else. And you might argue, for example, that if you are an American, you might think that your country is exceptional, but reject the idea of exceptionalism because of what that suggests about your country being isolated, not necessarily considering your place in the world, just thinking you are better than them and disregarding all those experiences from different cultures and different countries. So whilst the idea of American exceptionalism, which I think was was kind of not coined, but made popular, if you like, by Stalin, which is particularly interesting when you consider some of those people who like the idea of American exceptionalism, because I don't think they'd necessarily consider Stalin to be a, uh, an acolyte. But there is, there is an idea that American exceptionalism is a pejorative term for a lot of people who still think that America is exceptional. So apply that to the Premier League. The Premier League still might be exceptional. It might be the best. But the, the, consider- the inward-looking element of exceptionalism is, is perhaps something that undermines it, as I spoke earlier. So is there an element, and the year will now come from the lips of either Smith or Wyatt <laughs> to tell us, is there a moment where that, that feeling of we are the best, we are going to have the best coaches, the best football, the best players, the most money, and do you know what? Screw everybody else. Not, not suggesting that that's what they think, but if we are to use this metaphor, then let's suggest that that happened at a moment. Did that flip? the Premier League, into an era of exceptionalism? Just first, when I, when I envisaged two very recent Everton head coaches shaking hands on the touchline ahead of the next El Clasico as being a, a launch pad for a discussion about the Premier League, I didn't expect somebody to end up talking about Stalin, Hugh, within the context of that conversation. <laughs> Wikipedia gives you all sorts of that is That is the beauty of this particular football podcast. I'm, I, I can't drill down to the exact year in response to what, what Chinch was talking about, but I wonder whether it was around about the time that finishing in the top four in the Premier League became something of an achievement. The way that Arsene Wenger ultimately ended up talking about, well, forget the trophies, look how many seasons in succession we finished in the top four. I wonder whether when that division and perhaps even then a top six division came into play, that the idea of finishing in the top four in the Premier League was equivalent to winning a trophy somewhere else. Was that the point in, was that, in which the Premier was League that got separated by, ever so slightly? Do you think that, that thought process was driven by players and coaches? You mentioned Arsene Wenger, or was it driven by the league saying, this is what's really important in our league, finishing in the top four. So was it, again, does the league drive the exceptionalism or is it the people coming to the Premier League and the, 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 how they view the league that they're going into? Do you see what I mean? There's maybe a difference between people working in it and yeah. people running it. Well, that, that, that's a very interesting point, Hinge, because as we've mentioned a lot of times before, the Premier League is a construct that is of its clubs. So that, yes, there is a, an existence of a Premier League. The Premier League is an operation, but the Premier League breathes and lives in the bodies of its 20 clubs Mm -hmm. so it might have uh, an an opinion which is unilateral and uh, issued through statements but generally speaking that opinion that thought that's 
that opinion of itself as well is driven by the 20 clubs who sit in so that it's league. So the pe- people that run the clubs, how they view the clubs, their philosophy, financial, on the field, off the field. So that the, the, the league then is the clubs, basically. Yes, it can't do anything yes, unilaterally yes, yes. that the clubs aren't already wanting so to then do. So in terms of the Premier League's philosophy, it isn't necessarily, it isn't, they're not really in full control of that. The clubs are in control of the direction that the league takes. Yeah, and that's what that, that's a big problem for the league. This is this is way off topic, but mm. the, the, there is a discrepancy between what the what certain clubs within the Premier League think is good and what the other fourteen think is good. And that you can you can look at the bid six as being selfish and craven and venal, but the bid six would tell you that the, that the other fourteen are basically gravy train uh, vagrants. <laughs> Who is what do you call someone who, like pa- they're just passengers on a gravy passengers. train? Passengers, and they don't have to be vagrants. No, I, I agree with Rory. You're probably <laughs> hiding in the post carriage because you don't want to pay yeah. a ticket on a gravy train. Vagabonds exactly. and transients. <laughs> transients. They're just they're just vagabonds, and they they would say People that passing from gravy town to gravy town. <laughs> that the bid six would say that they've done the most to to push the Premier League to the position that it's in now, where it kind of sits at the top of the pyramid, across the top of and separate from the pyramid across European football. This is where the, yeah, the European Super League thinking came from, didn't it? So again, yeah, exactly, we're going yeah. down that road again, aren't we? Which is what we'll talk about in another episode of our three-parter. But so so if if there is this point, and and Stephen, you've you've given the idea that it was a point when finishing in the top four became commensurate with or better than securing a, tro- a trophy for a Premier League club. That might be the moment where the balance tips somewhat. Is that, what, 10 years ago, the beginning of 2010, like that? that? Or is it when, when Klopp and Guardiola pushed it to the point where the pinnacle of the managerial pyramid was seen to be the Premier League, which prior to that, perhaps it wasn't? Yeah, I think there's been, there has been a shift in the last five years I think where getting a top six, get, potentially getting a top six Premier League job, all of those six are ranked on a par with Barca, Real, Bayern, Juventus. So why did why did Spurs end up with Nuno? Not nothing against Nuno, but it wasn't their first choice. But why why did Spurs end because up with Nuno? Largely because Spurs are not a great proposition at this point. I, th- I think that's the basic problem. But that in itself, that whole, the struggles that they've all had, Spurs and Everton and Crystal Palace, this is another way I've forgotten uh, what's going on in football. Who is the Crystal Palace manager? Patrick Vieira. That's right. That They've all had a huge <laughs> amount of... Have you switched your footballing brain off? Completely. Completely. <laughs> then, and the final another... whistle blows at the European <laughs> Championship final. Did you just off? Off. I did. I did. No, genuinely. I, I was like, right, I have... I tried, had to write a piece. I wrote a piece the next morning about um, the run up to the World Cup and the fact that there's even more slog to come. And then sat back on the train and thought, nope, that's it. I Don't care to. anymore. <laughs> Not interested. But Patrick Vieira is an interesting one because that's another kind of name in, name ID insurance yeah, yeah. Like, to, to what you so, were speaking about but before. You, but that's reversed, isn't it? That's reversed. It's I, from elsewhere that it doesn't matter because he's got name ID yeah. in the Premier League as a player. And what's really interesting about that is that so far his record as a as a manager head coach doesn't align yep. with what you would expect a a Premier League club in Crystal Palace's position require. He's been crap, is, you mean, Steve? Well, yeah, but st- at least the stability of staying in the Premier League and, and, and certainly his most recent uh, job with Nice didn't necessarily suggest 
that he was capable of making the step up to the Premier League. But that, that's something that we will discover whether I'm right or wrong about next season. But it does, it does lend further weight to the idea that the Premier League sees itself as an, as, as an exceptional environment yeah. that where what you do elsewhere does not always, it does sometimes, but it doesn't, does not always reflect your standing within the Premier League. So Patrick Vieira, and good luck to him, it might be that, or with most managers, they just need the right context to do well. And it might be that Vieira finds it at Palace. I can't particularly see it because they don't have any players, but which strikes me as being a major problem, that they've got, they've got a squad of 11. But the, Maybe they signed him as a player and they've just not revealed possibly. it. But they've basically looked at, looked, at it the contract. looked at it and thought, well, he's a big name, so he'll do. Their, their, their first choice, I think, was, was Lucien Favre, who pulled out and w- would, have, would have been a really smart appointment for Palace. That would have made a load of sense for where they are and the type of squad they're likely to have. Vieira's much more of a risk, but he's famous, so... so in, in he comes. It's even. I mean, it's it, Vieira's appointment's great on one level because it means the Premier League has a black manager, which which has been a, a massive problem for a long time. And there is there is something interesting in the fact that 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 the black manager who's dropped the job has dropped it not not because of or despite his, the colour of his skin, but because of his fame rather than his CV. Which again, I think everything just kind of illustrates that the Premier League thinks of itself as as a bubble effectively that that what matters is not kind of what you've done at Nice or New York City FC it's literally just how, the fact that you're well known in the Premier League that is the overriding factor but Palace Everton and Spurs all had problems appointing managers Wolves didn't because they had someone helping them who just happened to have the perfect candidate the I remember that one that's Bruno Large is the Wolverhampton Wanderers manager he's very well qualified the um but they've all had a problem because None of them, I think, I'm not sure I can articulate this properly, they all want someone who's proven in the Premier League to a certain level. But that means you can't go and appoint Ralph Hasenhutl, say. Spurs could have appointed Ralph Hasenhutl, or Everton could. And that is just about to step up Southampton to Everton. Southampton Spurs is a step up and is a well-worn path. But they, they couldn't appoint Hasenhutl because the perception is not that, he, is that he's not succeeded in the Premier League. So you're looking at teams who are, you know, Everton finished 10th, Spurs finished, what, 6th? Yeah. Maybe seventh. Um, no idea. I've forgotten. But, uh, the, <laughs> but they, they can't go and appoint a guy who finished wherever Southampton finished, 17th, because that's not success. So you, th- there are basically, there are no viable, there, there's a tiny number of viable candidates for Premier League jobs because you have to have succeeded in the Premier League. And, so, and I'm going to come to Stephen because it's just a just short, short, short point and he'll make a much better point. But the, the fact is that if you've got name insurance like Patrick Vieira because of your performances in the Premier League, you don't have that if you're a manager who has performed lower than that as a manager in the Premier League. So there's two completely disparate benefits or non-benefits to being in the Premier League. So if you're a Ralph Hasenhutl, because you haven't been successful enough in the Premier League as considered by those who might be appointing him at a club which isn't successful enough and you don't have the name ID from being a player or having had a previous job, you're ruined. There's a massive great big no man's land between you and the Premier League jobs or top six. But someone like Patrick Vieira, who is exactly the opposite, who hasn't necessarily succeeded to those kind of levels, but has the name ID, you jump across that no man's land and you're given an opportunity. So it's fascinating to see those two completely different two sides of the one coin. And Ralph Hasenhutl offers a good insight into this idea of, of what you do in the Premier League only mattering in the Premier League. 
and, and in contrast to some of the other people that we've talked about who have then stepped away from the Premier League into big jobs elsewhere, that in November last year, the idea of Ralph Hasenhutl going to Spurs or Everton would have been absolutely plausible. Great well, start Dortmund, as Rory, Rory suggested. Yeah. yeah, Southampton sitting top of the Premier League. My goodness, what a job this guy is doing. It unravels in the second half of the season yeah. for him in Southampton. And his name in terms of a step up to another Premier League job just drops completely off the radar. Yet you would imagine, should he have been interested in a top four, five, six job in, in Germany or Gladbach or someone. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that, that would have, that avenue would have still been open to him. But even, I mean, the, the one that I've always found it really interesting is Benitez, that the Benitez has, has, a, has an, an impeccable CV, basically, you know, he's not, he's won, I mean, it's a long time ago since he won Spanish titles and, and the Champions League, but he's managed some top clubs. He's worked with top class players. He's, he, he was for a while in that upper echelon of, um, of elite managers. He's like but Ancelotti they, to me. He's like he's, he's like Ancel- Ancelotti in at, at a lower level. Yes. And I I love Rafa dearly, but but at a lower level. Um than Ancelotti because Ancelotti's won three Champions Leagues, he's won titles more recently, all that. Uh he you you couldn't you can make the case that Ancelotti's had jobs where winning titles is more realistic, but uh, you know, it's easier to win a title with PSG than it is Napoli, for example. Um, As Carlo Ancelotti found. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The but the, you know they're both probably at the same stage of their careers now, and it's it's interesting that that yeah Ancelotti's gone to Real Madrid, but Benitez, I think you know if if Spurs had obviously Everton's complicated as the, the Liverpool connection, but if Spurs had appointed Benitez, there would have been a sense of oh no, he's not good enough for us. Just as when Spurs appointed Nuno, there was that sensation. And had Spurs appointed Eric Ten Hag, there would have been that sensation. And it's because all of these clubs, I think, believe they are entitled to... Believe they sit at the top of the pyramid, that they should be getting the the very best managers in the world. And that doesn't just apply to, to Manchester City and Manchester United and, and Liverpool and Chelsea, who to some extent, and it varies from club to club, have reason to believe that they are the equal of Bayern and Barcelona and Real Madrid at the at this point in time. It also seems to apply to West Ham and Everton and Tottenham, who were, who were not at that level. The, the, the nature of those clubs is that they have to take a risk. That is the element of the exceptionalism in the pejorative that we were talking about earlier. If you are not necessarily deserving of the tag exceptional because you are not the very best of the very best, but to associate yourself with it or to demand or feel entitled to the trappings of that exceptional status, that's when the exceptionalism in the pejorative comes in because you don't really deserve to be and yet you think you should be. Well, so the, the, the best contrast, I think, is with the Bundesliga. So this summer, basically all of the Bundesliga teams have changed manager. There's been some ridiculous churn. And that's partly because um, Hansi Flick went to take the, the Germany job and Dortmund were in need of a manager after second five. So Marco, they went and got Marco Rosa and that sort of kind of kickstarts everything. But if you look at the way that it's fallen, it all makes perfect sense. There's an obvious pyramid. So Bayern go and get the next best, best, best coach in Germany in Julian Nagelsmann. Dortmund get Marco Rosa, who's the other kind of up-and-comer fits maybe with their style a bit more. And then to replace Marco Rosa, um, Gladbach look around and say, right, which clubs are probably on the run just below us in terms of recent success, play a similar style and and have an up-and-coming man, a relatively up-and-coming manager. And they don't appoint Adi Hutter from Eintracht Frankfurt, at which point Frankfurt go and get 
the the guy who's in exactly the same position. I've now forgotten who's manager of Eintracht Frankfurt, but basically they go and get the this. They, they go through the same process and go and get the same guy, the best candidate from the next level up. And that applies throughout the league. Leipzig, slightly different, go and get Jesse Marsh from, from RB Salzburg, a club with whom they have absolutely no relationship. Um, <laughs> it's a coincidence. It's just a coincidence. They're playing the same club, doesn't have the same name. But it, it's all kind of set up to work in that way that there is a pyramid. The problem in England, I think, and this is maybe where the exceptionalism is, is that the entire league believes it's at the top of the pyramid to some extent and there is there is a snootiness to to appointing anybody basically who is not Pep Guardiola which would if you're, if you're Burnley or Newcastle or Southampton you think along those lines which I is think but, but you, it's I exactly think... what you're saying Chinch earlier on about whether it's a premier league or the clubs yeah. that constitute the premier yes, league absolutely. the premier league yeah. gets that from its clubs each and yeah, every yeah. one of them but that's what I'm saying think... those clubs do they see themselves as not that clearly they're not at the top of the Premier League, but being a Premier League club gives them a certain status, and then I, they feel that whoever they appoint has to be because we're a Premier League club, not we're Burnley or we're Southampton or we're Newcastle. We're a Premier League club, so we demand what we feel is the best. Burnley's a bit tricky because obviously it's it's Sean Dyche. You're never going to sack Sean, are you? Even, never, ever. even in in my sort of anti-football fud, I can remember that Sean Dyche is Burnley. But so if you take Newcastle, there's an issue with Steve Bruce. That, that applies specifically to Steve Bruce. But I think that it would be hard, and this is based purely on the experiences of Palace and Everton and Spurs this summer, it would be hard for Newcastle to find a manager who they could realistically get who would meet the fans' demands. If they weren't appointed Graham Potter, there, there would be some Newcastle fans, because obviously not all Newcastle fans think the same, who would be a bit like, well, what's he done at Brighton? And it's not that it's not that Newcastle fans are sitting around thinking we should get Pep Guardiola, that's what should happen. We should go and like get the let's run it Antonio Conte. But they when you look at kind of the reaction to quite a lot of the candidates, it becomes clear that it's really hard to meet the bar of what fans expect their club to do now. That probably doesn't apply to every team. I suspect it doesn't apply to Burnley, I suspect it doesn't apply to Brighton, some of the less traditional teams who are in the Premier League, but certainly those the, the big name clubs would Newcastle fans be pleased if they appointed Dean Smith from Aston Villa? I'm not. I'm, not, I'm genuinely. Yeah. This is not a criticism. Genuinely not sure if they would. Newcastle perhaps are a really useful example of this exceptionalism because they are a big Premier League club in terms of big crowds, great stadium. Their recent success though doesn't have them at anything like the level of those more established sort of big six or seven in the Premier League. Yet for them, they do feel that they sit, massive generalisation, don't get cross with me, Newcastle fans, but they, they do feel like they sit well above the run of the mill. And the thing, their, their feelings towards Rafa Benitez compared to Steve Bruce, I find quite extraordinary in that the style of football not vastly different. Again, sorry about the sweeping generalisation. And in terms of points on the board at the, the end of the last four seasons or so, again, very similar. However, Newcastle fans have clearly decided that Steve Bruce is beneath them, or at least yeah. a large majority of them have, whereas that same large majority feel as though a Champions League winning head coach is, is a much better fit, even though what they've tangibly what they've achieved, achieved on the pitch is, is very close to identical. I think there are, take Steve's point, I think there are differences, but the, to me, the more, the more compelling comparison is, is what would Newcastle be if they were somewhere else? 
what sort of manager would they be expecting? Newcastle are basically Genoa, except that, you know, for Sampdoria reads Sunderland, essentially. Genoa will take literally anybody to be their coach. Basically, it's it's whoever's available until they need Davide Balladini again. That's, that is who is manager of Genoa. And there there is not this same sense of we should be getting... Genoa would not, in their in their wildest dreams, expect someone who'd won a Champions League to go and manage them. I mean, it, I want, it just... I want Steve Bruce to go to Genoa. I'd I love really Steve. I, that. <laughs> I, I would, and this, this is a different subject, but I would, I'm genuinely sad that more English coaches haven't thought, actually, do you know what, we need to go abroad to succeed, because that's how you get jobs in England. And you can testify, Genoa is a lovely place. It's a lovely place, and it's a lovely club, and they've got a great kit, and Thomas Durabi used to play there. What more do you want? But And they have a cricket so, division. So, you they've know, got you a cricket division. Come on. So the Premier League summer. But the, it's, the, it, the, Premier League clubs, the Premier League clubs must be a product of their environment then, basically. How the fans yeah. think about their status and the league that they play in has driven how they feel about themselves and what yeah. they feel they deserve, yeah. whereas other clubs are being a lot more realistic about where they sit. They, in the, they, in, in they, the... they accept, that I think, in some subconscious way, and this maybe encapsulates it, everybody on the continent accepts that they are part of a larger ecosystem. So Genoa will understand that they are at the same level as, I don't know, Bordeaux and... Maybe not Real Sociedad; they're a bit lower down than that. Real Betis or somebody or whatever. You know, they're kind of of that of that ilk, and that's kind of the, the that's the pool that they swim in. Whereas in the Premier League, because it's the Premier League, that doesn't that same ladder doesn't apply. Everything is just like we're, we're, this is the top of the ladder. Everyone should want us. You know, there's no reason that Addy Addy Hutter would have been a brilliant appointment for Newcastle, a really good appointment for Newcastle, or Everton or Spurs. Maybe not Spurs. Certainly Everton or Newcastle. But he's not won anything in Germany, so he is not a candidate. That's ridiculous. You can't have, you can't run a point at some nobody who we've never heard of. So we we better get Steve Bruce or Rafa Benitez or whoever or whoever George Mendes is recommending, because that's who we who we know, and that I think is a problem for the Premier League in the sense that what managers actually achieve elsewhere is in a lot of cases not really relevant. It doesn't apply to the top six. They want someone who's looked after, who's been in charge of a big club, which I think does, if I'm completely honest, make sense. Um, the Premier League, does it believes it sits apart, doesn't know how to read what happens elsewhere. It just believes that it has a right to 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 pick and choose the very best, and that is something that applies to the, to adjectives to the clubs themselves, whatever that means, and I think to an extent to fans. But they think there's clearly going to be it's a bit delusional maybe to think that because you're not actually doing if if I know football clubs aren't just what happens on the pitch but if you're in charge of appointing a, a head coach to benefit your team on the pitch surely you have to think along the lines of getting the right guy for the job we're really not that necessarily that interested Premier League club in getting the right guy for the job it's the guy that you maybe think the fans would yeah, accept think... or so you actually your thought process on who you employ because you're a Premier League club aren't actually necessarily football-based then, are they? Because as you're saying about those appointments that they maybe should have made, they didn't do. Maybe they did look into the possibility of that, but probably they didn't. And is that because, again, they're not thinking what is actually good for their football team? It's, it's, half, it's half football, half PR. Yeah. And, and managing those expectations because the expectations of, yes, as, as Rory was saying, the expectations is not just their own expectations that they send upwards into this Premier League homogenous hole. It is the expectations of the fans as well that push those clubs who then push those points of view when they, when they become the Premier League and those 20 chairmen sit around the table and talk about it. So there, there, there is um, an inextricable link of exceptionalism throughout mm-hmm. each and every club 
let alone when the clubs then get together and they're all battling, um, one would imagine, for exactly the same goals at all times. But that, that, that's, that's the issue, isn't it? If, if you are appointing a manager and at least half of your thinking, again, arbitrary numbers and massive overgeneralization, but if you are thinking almost as much about how this is perceived by either your fan base or even the fan bases of other teams as well or other teams uh, who might be either after the same targets or thinking about where you sit in the in the general hierarchy should we be getting a better manager than them because we think that they're a 10th place team and we're a 7th place team so so therefore we're in the slightly high, the higher hierarchy therefore it's we should absolutely, be appointing it has to somebody. come into the thinking doesn't it absolutely so, but does be. that come into the thinking everywhere else because we're always just given an example of Bundesliga where they essentially yes. recruit on the basis of right who is the right person for this job who yes sits below us in terms of um, the the league hierarchy, but only because that means we have an ability to get them. Yes, and no other reason. I think the other th- worth mentioning quickly on the Bundesliga that the that the fluidity of, of the head coaches there is enabled a little bit by by the structure where there is a lot more continuity in terms of sporting director and and board placings that 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 get, and that the, the philosophy of each club remains in place regardless of, of who's the head coach so that does give them that that chance to, to to try things out and if it it doesn't work it's perhaps more straightforward to replace the coach than it would be in the Premier League because the rest of the the structure remains pretty consistent but those appointments do they go down well in Germany or would the fans be saying hang on a minute what on earth are we doing going? no they they see this the, the sense oh, this, in these so- appointments you presume Rory has written about this and talked about it before. It's also the country where you see a prevalence of coaches stepping up from the under-23s or coming through the youth ranks and getting the top job at the club where they've been working. Julian Nagelsmann is is arguably the the shining light of that example, having worked his way up through the system at Hoffenheim, got the job at Leipzig. Next season, he's going to be the Bayern Munich coach, and he's still only in his early 30s. Yeah. So that is part one of our Premier League exceptionalism, question mark. Uh, if I was Ron Burgundy, that would, that would help me on the auto-Q. <laughs> in fact, I, I, we're going to make that the title. We're going to make that the title of these three podcasts, Premier League exceptionalism. And uh, on next week's show, we'll be talking finances, transfers and players. The failed ESL effort showed, at least on behalf of six Premier League clubs, that the revenues generated simply aren't exceptional enough for them. But does the rest of the world still suggest maybe one prize for an English club and another for everyone else? That is to come next week. Now, we cannot uh, rely on Chinch to provide us with three uh, soccer stories over the course of three podcasts recorded in the course of about three hours. So what we're going to do is provide you with something slightly different until the third episode, at which point Chinch will come in and oh, okay. steal all the thunder. So he has one ready. It's for the third episode because in place of that, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Rory, What a Soccer Story. It's normally when Andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. But recently, listener Matt Pomroy emailed with not one, but two soccer stories of his experiences and rather suitably we have two gaps to fill so from matt thank you very much indeed he has this tale to tell in 2005 i just moved to dubai 
and was at the annual Soccer X conference, working as a journalist, milling about looking for people to interview. Then, among the players, ex-players, agents and media, I saw the former England captain and 80s legend Brian Robson, one of the people I really wanted to talk to. The thing was, I was a bit hungover, having been out on a works event and then eaten late-night street food the previous evening. I was new to the country, and my stomach was still adjusting to the joys of a a 2am shawarma from a street vendor after a few pints, and at this point my guts were really churning. I had really bad visions of being mid-conversation with England legend Brian Robson and suddenly having to rapidly excuse myself and run off, or far worse, soiling myself in front of him. (laughs) So I sensibly decided to find a loo first and then catch up with him afterwards. I found the nearest toilet and only just in time. I'll spare you the scatological details, but just say that it was what my father used to refer as being like a flock of starlings. A big stink and over half a loo roll later, I finally flushed and walked out and there in the bathroom waiting to use the cubicle was Brian Robson. Our eyes briefly met as I scuttled over to the sink and then worse, he started coughing in obvious disgust, his eyes watering. As I stood washing my hands, I heard him close the door, slide the lock and then he started to mutter, Oh Jesus Christ, oh right. After that, I was just too embarrassed to go up to him, so I had to lie and tell my editor that he'd refused to talk to me. At least now, though, I can say I once made one of football's great hard men cry. Uh, so that is Matt. Matt, part two, coming up next week. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, even though we will only get to them after this uh, three-parter special series filler. Uh, please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Stephen, Rory, and Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Uh, and during which time, you will note that uh, Rory was uh, quiet for about five minutes. The car has now disappeared. It has gone. No, 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 the car has not disappeared. The, the, car, the car has just been, it's just been inspected. Um, we are waiting to see whether it passes. Oh, right, I see. Oh, is that, are you, are you, it's having you a medical. It's having its medical. It's having its medical. Uh, yes. The, um, Neil Redfern is having his medical. <laughs> which I think would probably tell us that he's 55 years old. How old is Neil Redfern now? Because he played until he was about 40, didn't he? He did. Oh, yeah. He'd be, he'd be in his mid-50s with Neil Redfern. You must, you must older, have played against... Older than me? Is he older than me? You must That'd have played against Red as Chinch. Come on. Was he, was he Barnes? Was he Barnsley? Barnsley about four different I, times. I think he'd be younger he? than me. I think he'd be late 40s. He's 56. 56. 56? He's got four years. Wow. Okay. But he's still, he's still ruddedly handsome. Yeah. And, it, and you still see him around the parish because he, uh, he does some co-commentary for Talk Sports. So you see him in a press oh, box occasionally okay. around the, the northern clubs of England. He's only allowed to do it. That's actually a law. That Neil, Neil Redfern's only allowed to comment on northern to... games. He has the, a shot collar if he goes, yeah, he goes too far <laughs> south. If, if he, he gets anywhere near the M5. <laughs> if he gets to the junction ah! of M6 and the M1, a little alarm goes off. It's interesting, he, 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 whether you live in the north or the south of England, where you determine the middle of England to be. So if you live in the south, it always used to be Watford Gap Services, wasn't it? Which <laughs> yeah. is essentially at least bottom third of the country. And if you live in the north, it's if you crude. go anywhere in kind of Derbyshire, you're ruined. <laughs> no, I think Steve's right. It's where the M6 meets the M1. That's, that's the south beneath that. Everything else is the north. Okay. Okay, so I suggest the M6 are meeting the M5, but the M1 is slightly lower than that, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Kind of Covent, isn't it Coventry area? Have I got that right? Uh, it's, no, it's, it's beyond Coventry. Beyond Coventry. Coventry's, Coventry's the, that, the Midlands of the north. It's rugby, basically. Yeah. Rugby. Northamptonshire. Yeah. It's the clues in the name. Because <laughs> obviously, in, in Old English, Hampton means starts here. So it's North <laughs> Hampton. Well, that, that doesn't really make sense when you go as far as Southampton, because if the South only starts there, the South is going to be very small indeed. It's just wet.
south of Europe. 